As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. We have a world exclusive today. By the time this airs, it will have just been announced that... Two of your papers with you, Michael Levin, have been published with your co-authors, which are here, Gizem Gumishkaya and Angela Tung. So, Michael, I'd like you to explain what these papers are, and then Gizem and Angela, I'd like you to explain respectively the significance of those papers. So, Michael, please. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, really interesting to me that uh, these are all coming out at the same time because there's a kind of a fundamental similarity here. Um, one, uh, so, so Gizems has to do with something we call Anthrobots, which are these, uh, it's a new biorobotics platform. Uh, they're made of um, uh, human, human cells and uh, they're kind of a self-motile uh, construct that has all kinds of uh, possibilities for, uh, for medicine and for telling us about uh, evolution and development and so on. And so Gizem will talk about that. Um, Angela's uh, paper is about the ability of embryos to communicate with each other and to help each other resist various uh, teratogenic influences. So, so things that would normally cause developmental defects, it turns out that in a group, embryos are able to work together to better um, overcome those kinds, of, uh, those kinds of influences. And so what these things have in common is really uh, our attempts to understand where biological information comes from. Because in the one case, so in the uh, Anthrobot case, we have this coherent construct that is using a completely wild type human genome to make a form and function that are not the typical things you see in the you know, normal human target morphology. In the case of uh, Angela's paper, what you see is that the robustness of development is not just the property of a single embryo with its own genome, but actually a group phenomenon where uh, a number of, in fact, the larger the group, the better, uh, large collections of embryos are able to together solve the problem of morphogenesis better than individuals or small groups. And so in both cases, it's this really interesting uh, dynamic of where biological control information comes from. All right, great. Gizem, if you don't mind, yeah. please, what is the significance of that? Uh, sure, sure. So like at a high level, 
what is really exciting about this work, I think, is this paradigm shift in our thinking about biology and nature. We tend to think about nature as this thing sitting outside waiting to be investigated by scientists and written books about. But in reality, what I came to realize uh, as a designer sort of eight years ago, that nature can actually be a design medium through this new field called synthetic biology, which recognizes that um, biological structures have embodied computational frameworks that determine their um, architecture and their function. So I became really interested personally in trying to get new architectures to um, build themselves uh, with sort of um, composed of biological tissues and why biology? Because biology has a lot of properties that the sort of traditional um, sort of construction methods don't. Um, well, properties like carbon negativity, it can take carbon from the environment um, in building itself. Um, this idea of self-construction, you know, starting from a single seed and becoming a fully fleshed structure, um, healing, uh, ability to take information from the environment, process that and give a um, output, um, regeneration. So a lot of different properties that we don't see in human designed and built um frameworks. So specifically for anthrobots, um, why it's really exciting. Um, so traditionally, what's been done in the field of synthetic morphogenesis, which is this idea of creating new uh, biological structures, is to um, try to edit the DNA, the genetic code, to create new patterns um, with cells. But that is currently like, has been really limited in the type of complexity and the scale that the structures can be generated. So Anthrobots is looking into uh, biology and the, the morphogenetic code as a sort of more layered um, enterprise. So it's not only genetics, but also epigenetics, which, um, you know, consists of bioelectricity, as we'll discuss in the episode, um, as well as, um, other sort of, um, like methylation type of, um, changes in the genome. Um, so with anthrobots, we wanted to leverage that. Uh, like, can we start with one structure that, um, is known to build something in the body? In this case, human, um, trachea. But then can we, by giving it environmental inputs, um, can we get it to um, create a completely novel structure without touching the genome? So we still don't know what epigenetic factors and of which there are a lot of different uh, possibilities that exactly give rise to the anthrobot. So the process is um, something we're investigating. But um, what we've seen is that we were able to get these cells to create a new architecture that we had uh, designed a priori. Um, so yeah, like in summary, there are the, the, the first sort of fully cellular living self-constructing biological robots and they build themselves from single cells and, um, they don't have sort of electrical wiring or mechanical parts as a traditional sort of robot would have. Um, but they are still sort of programmed anatomies in that sense, we call them biobots. That's where the sort of robotics aspect is coming from. And also, like the bots we know of, they can do useful work. So we show that they are able to traverse uh, wounded human neuronal tissues and induce repair um, in those wounds in the co in a course of like three days. So in a nutshell, that's the aspiration and the, and the summary.
Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's actually a, that, that's a really important point because uh, when we made the Xenobots, some people thought that this might be some sort of result that's specific to amphibians. I mean, we know amphibians are kind of plastic with this embryonic tissues are tend to be plastic. And so there's this temptation to think of this as a, um, a kind of a very specialized result, uh, you know, due to the, the embryonic uh, activities of, of, of frog tissue. And so we wanted to get as far away from that as possible. And so here, here we have full adult uh, human uh, human cells doing uh, the, the same type of, uh, you know, the same type of thing. All right, Angela, your work on embryos assisting one another. Can you please explain why is that consequential? Yeah, so I think the significance of this work is that it's taking a step in addressing this knowledge gap that exists within the field um, with respect to these instructive lateral interactions that can be used to correct any developmental defects that at a level that occurs above just the cells, tissues, DNA, or organs. Um, so we're looking at whole organisms and how they can interact with each other and aid each other. Um, and all of this, I guess, is important because we're able to, if we're able to understand and harness these instructive cues, then we can use cells and tell them what to build and when to stop building and use them to fix defects and disease. Um, so there's kind of this application for medicine potentially in the future. Yeah. And you said that when you had first brought it up to Michael, you thought it was crazy <laughs> and you weren't sure what he was going to say about it. So why is it so ludicrous? I guess in the field like of biology, everyone studies the genome. So the idea that our genome is going to predict what we're going to look like in our future. So our genome leads to our phenotype. And that's kind of the underlying, one of the underlying principles of biology my work is kind of looking at, okay, well, what about things outside of the genome and kind of contradicting that a little bit because it's looking at now our genomes are not being changed, but we're able to change all these other things without affecting the genome in any way. So I thought that this is crazy. Like I'm not doing anything to the genome, but all of these different defects are forming. And the only thing that's different is the number of embryos in a cohort. Um, so I think to me, that was very shocking. Uh-huh. Okay, so Gazem, I would like you to explain this simply. Suppose we were to isolate a cell from a human lung and we put it in a Petri dish. Okay, does this cell exhibit the characteristics that are consistent with an anthrobot? Now, I imagine not. So what modifications are necessary for this cell to attain the anthrobotic status? Um, sure, sure. So uh, our starting question was, how do we get to this target morphology, which is this multicellular sp spheroid with cilia on the surface, and where that target morphology comes from is the xenobats, um, except that we wanted to change how we get there. Um, so we, we talked about self-construction. We wanted a single cell to give rise to that target architecture. And then we also talked about um, necessity to use human cells as well as the necessity to use adult cells. So um, our starting material for that reason could have been uh, a progenitor cell from any one of the ciliated epithelial tissues in the body. So not just the airway, you also have the ciliated epithelia in the oviductal um, region and, or in the brain. Uh, we started with human lung epithelium because the um, accessibility of the cells due to the research that's out there. Um, there is a lot of sort of material available for lung research due to cancer and other um, other diseases. So uh, for that reason, our starting material was the human 
um, airway epithelium progenitor cells. So these cells are already um, committed to becoming any one of the cell types in the human airway. So they could be secretory cells or ciliated cells. And what was already known in the literature is that if you culture these um, cells in a rich uh, matrix, extracellular material rich ma matrix, they will form the spheroid. Um, and a single cell will, will, uh, give rise to that spheroid. The problem was that in that configuration, the cilia would be, uh, looking, um, inside to the lumen because the goal of those types of, um, culture methods, which, uh, you know, touches to the field of, um, organoids is to recapitulate the native tissue architecture. So when you look at the human lung to trachea, you have cilia inside and you have these, um, sort of basal cells outside. So the protocol that was already developed in the literature was mimicking that. But for us, for our purposes, to get the cilia to look outside so they can, you know, be motile like the xenobats, we had to come up with a way to get them to flip inside out. So that's uh, what we've accomplished. And we've tried a lot of different approaches for this. Um, and what ended up working for us was to sort of trick th those ciliated cells that develop and look inside to migrate outward. So um, how we've accomplished that was by two things, by changing the um, growth phase. So these spheroids are, again, embedded in a matrix, and that's what's making the cilia to look inside. So if we remove that matrix and instead um, supply uh, a low phase liquid based environment that would make the ciliated cells to, um, sort of, um, undergo eversion. And then the second thing we did was to, uh, sort of bombard them with something called retinoic acid, which is known to play a critical role in ciliogenesis, um, as well as other developmental, um, pathways. So, uh, basically by tricking these airway organoids to flip inside out, we got them to form the target architecture. So human cells are already known for being plastic in a certain manner? Mm -hmm. Human lung cells. And that's lung cells in yeah. general or human lung cells in particular? So um, all tissues, like cells that, are, that have the progenitor status, are known to be plastic into a degree. I mean, the plasticity dro drops as you move in. Mike and Angela can also speak to this. Um, it what's known is that it drops from the embryonic state to the um, sort of adult and elderly state, but it's never sort of a binary thing. Um, it, it is for some organisms, but for humans, um, it's not a binary thing because there are a lot of protocols out there that use the progenitor cells, which are sort of semi-stem-like uh, and semi-committed cells um, that form different structures in vitro. It's just a question of how do you get it to form the structure of interest for you. Um, and the method that's used in the literature a lot is uh, to use genetic circuits to do this, to get that cell to execute certain morphogenetic functions. But using that method, getting to something as complex as a ciliated spheroid would not be possible. And that's why we wanted to play into the native plasticity um, of these cells. Now, before we get to Angela, Michael, I would like you to mm. talk about the correlation between the structure and the motility. Yeah. So uh, when you look at any kind of animal, uh, you always wonder uh, what, what the relationship is between the, uh, the structure and the function. In other words, typically in a, in a standard 
kind of creature that our model system that we study, there's a long history of evolutionary selection that makes sure that the structure that it has is actually uh, per perfectly suited for the functionality that uh, that you want it to have. And so this means moving around in the three-dimensional world, but also physiological kinds of uh, actions and so on. And so in this case, what we're dealing with here is, is something super interesting. It's a, it's a creature that, although it has a perfectly standard human genome, is not something that's uh, ever been specifically under selection before to be a good anthrobot. There's never been any anthrobots. And so, so what we're looking at is a, a new uh, a new functionality right a new set of behaviors and a new structure that underlies it but we didn't know ahead of time what that relationship was going to be and so um, Gizem and the team did this really amazing job characterizing two things. First of all, characterizing all the different shapes uh, and that they come in, that these anthrobots come in, and there are uh, a few discrete forms. And so this, they're they're actually um, we call them morphotypes because they're actually discrete. Uh, types of uh, of shape that you have in terms of the distribution of the cilia and and you know what the overall shape is and so on, and then we characterize the behaviors and they have a, a, a variety of different uh, paths that they can take through the medium, and that looks very much like there's a there's a notion in behavior science of um of an ethogram, which is basically just a, uh, a diagram of the different behaviors that an animal can do and which of those behaviors can uh, statistically likely to follow which other behaviors, you know, so you'll for like for some sort of fish, you'll do like there's this particular kind of uh, mating behavior that does. And so if it, if it darts a certain way, then next it'll do something else. And that's a 50% chance of doing something else. So you can, you can start to build up this diagram. And so what we did was to study these these anthropods as if they were a new kind of creature, because in an important sense, they were. We didn't know what all the behaviors were going to be. We didn't know what the relationship with the uh, with the shape was going to be. And so uh, they Gizem worked out um, how uh, the different shapes produce the different motions and really what uh, what the behaviors are and and how they how they tend to follow each other you know one one after the other and and i i really think that this is also just the beginning because uh you know this is the first paper on anthrobots this is a very basic characterization we need to do all kinds of interesting things now to see how they react to their environment how they interact with each other how they perceive certain cues there's a million things that you would want to do like with any new uh, you know any new model system were you surprised that they split into these distinct forms? Uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much everything here was was an interesting surprise. Um, it 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 really uh, it, we, we, it there were many possibilities. So so one possibility is that they would have uh, no behavior at all. Another possibility would be that they would only have one type of behavior. Another possibility would be that there would be multiple behaviors, but any given bot could only do one of those behaviors. So you really don't know uh -huh. what, what to expect. And uh, the fact that these behaviors are discrete that you can you can characterize, and this is uh, you know un unbiased statistical analysis showed us that there were in fact classes of uh, classes of behavior. Um, the fact that they fall into these classes is super interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, and and I just uh, I, I look forward to discovering what other what other classes of behavior there are, and then really fleshing out the the ethology of of uh, this new form to understand why it changes behaviors uh, when it does. Great. Angela, there's a term in your paper called cross-embryo morphogenetic assistance. So it's this mouthful, which is abbreviated to SEMA. So did you coin SEMA? And what is it? What does it mean? Yeah, so Mike and I wanted something that was catchy um, and very obvious. So the long form of it, the, what you just said, is kind of very obvious. It's how embryos can communicate with each other and assist each other. Um, and then just to make it 
not so much of a, hand, a mouthful, we decided that we would just call it SEMA for short. Um, and then the whole phenomenon is this idea that these larger groups are able to help each other out. So if you're re- like being stressed out at the Tratogen by yourself, you're not really sure how you're supposed to handle it. And so you're, um, you're unable to handle it versus when you're in larger groups of, let's say, like 100, um, you have others around you that may be able to handle the stressor and can give you these little <laughs> um, little packets of information like, hey, this is how I handled it. And now you too can survive the stressor. So what we see is that as we increase our um, cohort size, we see an increase in survival depending on uh, the tratogen that we're using, but also as our group sizes increase, we also see a decrease in the types of certain types of defects that we know. Um, so this is both increasing survival and decreasing the, um, the frequency of defects. Okay, so I'd like to attempt to explain this extremely elementary. So yeah. people have embryos. So embryos are like the seeded babies, single cell <laughs> babies or extremely small babies. Okay. okay. When you have just one of them and you give it something called a teratogen, which mm-hmm. is something that disrupts the development Correct. of one of these little guys. So they grow up abnormal. Mm-hmm. It turns out that when you have multiple embryos next to one another, that if you give it a teratogen, it's more resilient to these perturbations. It's more stable. So Correct. it's as if they're communicating somehow. These embryos are communicating and saying, hey, don't mess up your arm like this. Here's how to make a correct arm. Is that approximately correct? Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Yeah, that's, um, I think, the how we're envisioning this happening, kind of someone able to take the stressor in and figure out, you know, this is how I'm supposed to develop normally correctly. And then they're able to pass along this kind of these instructive cues to surrounding neighbors so that their surrounding neighbors can survive um, whatever stressor that's put on them as well. Michael, there's this concept called group wisdom. Is this some variation of that? 
Yeah, the, yeah. You know, we we know um, this. There's this phenomenon called wisdom of the crowds, and it's uh, th- there used to be this old um, thing where they'd be in certain in stores, it'd be this giant jar of jelly beans, right? And and people would try to guess how many jelly beans. And so the, the result there is that every individual person is quite off, and nobody has any idea how many jelly beans are there. But if you uh, just average all the guesses, it turns out that the crowd is is spot on. And so so this this phenomenon has been known for a long time, and our our initial hypothesis was that something like that was happening, that basically uh, that basically every embryo was contributing some amount of information, and uh, together they were able to have a much more steady uh, view of what a correct uh, embryo was supposed to be. And remember, these are frog embryos, so these start out as frog eggs, and you know they're these little, um, they're about a millimeter uh, millimeter in, in diameter, and, and there's there's many of them in a, in a petri developing in a petri dish. So originally, that's that's the thought we had, but but then um, Angela found a very interesting piece of data which suggests that the real story is uh, more more complex and more interesting, which is that if you were to uh, if you were to compose a group of some embryos that were exposed to teratogens and some embryos that were never exposed. The simple model would suggest that it would actually work quite well because the animals that were never exposed to the teratogens, well, they have a very good idea of how to make their, their body and their organs, and they should, they should do a great job of informing the others of, uh, of, of any information that they might be missing, right, in, in terms of that teratogen. But it turns out that actually um, that doesn't work. You need the, the optimal effect is when everybody was affected by the teratogen, and it's the... It's the um, it's the result of of uh, having confronted this uh, this influence and having overcome it that is actually what's necessary. Everyone has to have seen it in order for the group to know what to do, which is which is super interesting. And it means that it's it's a much more active uh, process. It isn't just that uh, you know I, I know what I know and I'm just going to spread that information and and everybody else can make use of it. No, it's actually um, that most likely what's happening is that that information is being derived on the fly as embryos are encountering these uh, these external threats they are deriving signals that are important for them to um uh, to reinforce the normal path that they take through this this uh, space of possible configurations and they're sharing that information with each other now michael is it less harmful because you're giving the same amount of teratogen to two embryos that you would to one or are you titrating proportionately so you'd give three x if there are three embryos that's a that's a that's a great question. No, of course, no, we of course we 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 uh, we titrated everything. This is uh, we we scale up the amount of teratogen based on how many embryos there are. So they're all yeah. Everybody's still getting the same amount of influence. So Angela, in the paper, there's the term interembryonic communication and interembryonic interaction. So what yeah. would be the difference between those two? Yeah. So I'm thinking interembryo communication is. In our paper, we talk about like a potential molecule calcium and ATP that can be used as a communicator. So it's almost like a little message that's being sent between embryos. Um, inter-embryo communication, uh, inter-embryo interactions is when these embryos are able to grow together. So now if you have an N of one, you may still be sending out messages, but you have no other in- embryos to interact with versus in these larger groups, we have both the message and people to receive the message. You also mentioned that it doesn't rely on genetic homogeneity. So how much of a variation is tolerable? Yeah, so within an individual cohort, we have, um, I don't know, like they're they're not all the same. They're not all homogeneous. Um, and none of 
that's not really important to us either. So there's a part of our paper in which we look at um, embryos or embryos from two different lineages. So we have wild type and albino embryos. Um, so they have different phenotypes and different gen genomes. And what we see is when we treat them both with stressor, um, there's no difference between the two. Um, so that indicates that, you know, you don't need to have the same genome to be impacted the same way. Yeah. And can you explain what a wild type is? Because I know before reading this paper, I never encountered that term outside of Pokemon. And in Pokemon, <laughs> wild type just means you find it in the wild. It doesn't belong to a trainer. So I'm like, okay, what does a wild type cell mean? That's basically yeah. it. Yeah. I was going to say, that's pretty spot on. Um, so a wild type genotype or wild type anything really just means how this organism exists in nature. So it's unperturbed. There's no changes that we've done to it. No genetic modification. I see. But you could still have wild type. So it has to be some relative term because every cell is mutated. So it can't just be like a non-mutated cell. It has to be with respect to something like it's relevant in a scientific experiment. You can't just find some cells and say these are wild type. You have to say these are wild type relative to something else or no? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, no, that's you're you're correct. It's it's the wild type of a given species just means that that is the standard uh, genome that you will find out in nature. It has not been modified by the experiment. Okay, so it's it's just a genetics. It's just a genetics term. It means it means that it, it's not a mutant of some sort. It's just the natural. Now, now, having said that, of course, you're absolutely right. Um, even within a natural population, you're obviously going to get var variability. So it's not. And in fact, with these frogs, these are not an inbred population. The way that you might have with with certain uh, model systems, these are this is an outbred population, and so of course there are genetic differences even between individual frogs in our colony. But wild type just means that there's no there's not been any specific um, mutation performed on them, like in the lab by a scientist. Exactly. Great, great, Gazem. How do you think different cell types would affect the formation and the behavior of the biobots? And I just noticed I used the word biobot. Okay, not anthrobot, because that's in the titles, but then in the paper, so. I also want to know, why did you all title it Biobots, but then also coin the term Anthrobot? But that's a separate question. So how do you think different cells would affect the formation of these Anthrobots slash Biobots? Uh, I mean, I guess like just kind of taking a step back and establishing the um, terminology there. Biobot is not a term we've coined. It's something that uh, has already been discussed in the literature. What that essentially um, refers to is programmable anatomy. I mean, that's sort of uh, using biological cells, either completely biological, like in the case of anthrobots or xenobots, or uh, some sort of a hybrid between biological and a uh, mechanical or chemical scaffold carrying those uh, cells and providing mechanical support. Um, so there could be a lot of different types of biobots, and there have been. Um, I guess the field really started flourishing around like 2013. Uh -huh, uh, what uh -huh. we have been trying to do um, is to create biobots that are fully cellular. And the first example of that is xenobots, right? So in creating xenobots, no um, external like gel or mechanical or electrical um, substance was used. Um, so anthrobots are another example of that, again, fully biological. Um, and the name is coming from the human origin. So biobots, the more yeah. general term, and an anthrobot Correct. and a xenobot are examples of them. Exactly. All fully cellular uh, biobots, yes. And there could be more in the future that could be named differently. 
Um, and so your, your original question was like, what, how different types of cells could um, create different types of biobots. So it all depends on what you're trying to accomplish. No one biobot is better or worse than the other one. It just depends on what your goals are. Uh-huh. Um, for xenobots, for example, like uh, the goal was to create something that could, um, or rather I should say, if your goal is to create something that could survive outside, like in the wild, <laughs> um, Xenobots is a better way to go than anthrobots because anthrobots are, um, they, because they're derived from human cells, they have sterility requirements. Um, and they are better for, say, medicine. Uh, whereas like anthrobots. I'm sorry to interrupt. They have what kind of requirement? Yeah, uh, so, uh, sterility, which means that they, uh, cannot come across, they cannot interface with pathogens of any kind. Um, bacteria or uh-huh, viruses uh-huh, or okay. fungi. Um, this is a general requirement for mammalian cell culture. Um, when we do cell culture of for any purpose, making biobots or investigating diseases, um, there are strict sterility requirements. We work inside uh, these sort of hoods with laminar flow that push air out to prevent anything kind of coming and landing on the cells. So with these um, strict sterility requirements. For example, if you're trying to build something that will go into the rivers and try to like detect the presence of a certain toxin and report back, you would not want to use a mammalian cell or an anthrobot, and like xenobot would be perfect for that. Um, or like another example, if you're trying to build something where you want to mass fabricate, then you would want to have a property like self-construction, as I mentioned, because then you have, you know, each biobot building itself, which means you can build like thousands of them in parallel without having to, you know, do anything. Like otherwise you would have to individually sculpt thousands. So it all depends on what your goals are. And that also um, impacts the decision of what cell type to use. So um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, a lot of different cell types could be used for a lot of different biobots. It all depends on what the design specifications are. Um, we're just trying to bring the idea of uh, design into biology, bring the, the, the two together and um, harnessing some of the properties that only biology has, um, such as like healing after damage or self-replication or self-construction, and bring that into this process of fabrication of new structures that does not ex- exist with the traditional materials like um, bricks and concrete and none of those things can like heal themselves or self-replicate or self-construct. So it's, uh, it's a merge between the two fields that, um, that really the idea is to empower the designer, the engineer to come up with their own design specifications. Yeah. Could you please speak to the potential medical applications? Um, yeah, so f- uh, again, one of our design spe- uh, specifications was uh, that we want to use this in medicine. And uh, like Angela was talking about, having them be vial type was really important for us. Um, so we're not sort of inserting any foreign DNA that could, when in turn deployed in the human body, could have off-target effects. So for that reason, it was important for us to keep the human DNA vial type. So we've tried from more than 20 different human donors. And in every single time, we were able to create an anthrobot. And um, that's across a lot of different ages um, and 
you know, genders and races. And we've seen that this works with a lot, you know, diverse like human genomes. Um, so what sort of more specifically in the medical field that we are hoping to accomplish is can we take a, a cell from a human donor? So currently, as we mentioned, we're taking these from the human airway epithelium, but down the line, you can envision taking a cell from a human uh, patient's skin and then uh, turning it into a induced pluripotent stem cell, which in turn would basically revert the clock and have the ability to then be differentiated into all these different kinds of tissues in the human body, including the human lung. So in terms of application, that's what we're envisioning. That's not something we've shown in the paper, but that protocol has already been worked out in the literature. Um, so starting with a human skin cell and then turning it into an, into an anthrobot that is... Uh, geared towards a specific application based on what that patient might need. Uh, and then when we put that into the body, it's, it is a synthetic construct. It's something that doesn't, um, you know, it, there's no such thing as an anthrobot in the human body. It is a synthetic construct. It has a new architecture, but it has the exact same genome as as that patient. So the body won't recognize it as a, or that's our current hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um as a, as a foreign object and will right. like trigger immune system and inflammation. Yeah, I was going to ask about if you all have tested biocompatibility or immunogenicity if you're already envisioning it for medical applications. Uh not yet. Our preliminary experiments have been with human cells but in vitro only. So uh, next up for us would be ex vivo tissues, so human cells uh, extracted from humans, and then after that it would be um, in vivo or proxies for in vivo um, experiments. Mm-hmm. So that would be step three. <laughs> yeah, but the but the, you know the I mean these cells are already coming from the they they've already been inside the patient. So so while while we haven't specifically tested the, the immunogenicity in vivo, the chances are very high that it's going to work. I mean, these are these are the idea is personalized medicine. It's a bespoke mm-hmm. uh, kind of um, construct that's made of each patient's own cells. So it's likely fine. And I, I just I, I want to um I just want to underscore the amazing the the thing that just just blows my mind every time I think about it. You know that last figure in that in that paper is basically showing just one initial thing that we found. That uh, that these guys can do, which is to to help um, neurons heal across a scratch wound in in two dimensional culture. Just just to think about that, your, the tracheal cells that are sitting in your body and they sort of sit there quietly for decades doing their thing and and, and using their cilia to waft uh, little particles and mucus and stuff up you know out of your lungs. The fact that if if uh, uh, liberated from their environment and given a chance to kind of re- reboot their 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 multicellularity. They now have the ability to go around and uh, repair defects in other types of cells. Like we would have never known that. It's just amazing to me that 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 they have that capacity, and it, and it makes me wonder what what else you know what other cells are sitting around the your your body with capacities to to heal other components and to have other beneficial you know pro regenerative uh, types of uh, uh, outcomes on different parts of the body like that that idea of releasing the um the native healing potential of your own cells and letting them do new things that might be beneficial for the body i think i i think is incredibly powerful and i think we're just seeing the first glimpses of that here mm-hmm. can you talk about how this fits into the larger framework of your work because as i heard gazem say take a skin cell and turn it into a pluripotent cell. Mm. It reminds me of our previous conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There's a few, uh, the, 
the the kind of applications of these are are in several different directions. On the one hand, we certainly want to use this for very specific practical purposes. So we think that um, once we gain uh, a better understanding of their uh, kind of native functions and and a little bit uh, better on the programming end, we will be able to address all sorts of very specific conditions and we can sort of run down some of the early um, ideas that, uh, that that we have. But there's a bigger picture here, which is uh, using the, using this uh, this biorobotics platform as a uh, kind of a simplified um, model system in which to crack the morphogenetic code. Uh, think about all of the problems of biomedicine, including birth defects, uh, traumatic injury, or or thus failing to heal from traumatic injury, cancer, degenerative disease. All of these things have one thing in common, which is that they would go away if we had the ability to tell groups of cells what to build. Right? That's that's the major uh, rate limiting step for regenerative medicine is that we do not understand how cellular collectives make decisions. Mm-hmm. We're pretty good on the hardware side for individual cells, right? So we, we know how cells differentiate. We know what the um, what the various um, lots of various genes do and and how they interact with each other and so on. But but this this idea of how do collections of cells make decisions that they're going to make a hand versus a foot versus something else. And more importantly, how we communicate our patterning goals to them. That is, if you want to build a new organ or you want to repair an existing organ or you want to make something that has never existed before, what information do you need to give to these cells and what interface can you use to get your, your, your goals across to the, uh, to the cellular collective? And that, I think, is, is uh, critically important for unlocking the promise of regenerative medicine. And so that's, that's what we're starting off here because you really have to uh under before you can you can use all these fancy programming techniques and that includes not just the traditional symbio that people are using but also the stuff that we do in our lab which is bioelectrical um kinds of uh, communication with networks and so on you really need to understand what are the baseline plasticities and competencies of these cells what do they already know how to do and why why do they make decisions and uh to uh uh, take specific paths through anatomical space and build specific kinds of um, anatomies and so on and so I think that's, it, you know, in the greater scheme of our lab's work, which is to understand how to communicate with the collective intelligence of cells. This is a very important uh, um, a model system in which we can now ask, okay, what kinds of stimuli, what kinds of information can we be giving to these cells to get them to build various things? Much like with the Xenobots, you know, these first papers uh, were all about characterizing their background kind of native competencies. We didn't engineer the heck out of them with new genes and all this stuff. We, we, we can, and we probably will in the future. But step one is to understand how, how do collections of cells make decisions about what they're going to do. Michael, can you also indicate, again, these are two different papers here that have an overarching theme, but outline how are they distinct and how are they the same? So one has to do with anthrobots or biobots, and then the other has to do with this embryonic yep. communication and the resilience. So please. Sure. Yeah, the, 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 the combo, well, there, there are many common themes, but one, one important one is collective decision-making. So it's, again, this idea of, uh, so, so in the case of the anthrobots, it's a question of understanding how groups of uh, normal cells with normal human um, genome-derived uh, molecular hardware are going to decide to work together to uh, make a specific new coherent construct with with new behaviors, new new functionalities, and so on. In the case of Angela, this is uh, and the um, and the cross embryo morphogenetic assistance. It's the idea that standard developmental biology studies how uh, cells cooperate to make a, a nice embryo. 
Well, it turns out that there's, this actually works on a higher level as well. So groups of embryos also work together to complete morphogenesis. And in both of these cases, what we want to understand is where is the information? What is the collective intelligence of these cells? What are they? What kind of problems are they able to solve? So in the case of the anthrobots, they're uh, they're uh, able to. Um, uh, uh, they, they find themselves in a new environment, uh, in a new uh, kind of a, a new scenario, and they're able to put together a very coherent uh, form that is able to to live for weeks and and and, and have certain functions and so on. In the case, in, in Angela's case, what you're seeing is again a kind of collective problem solving, but this time at the level of whole animals. So not down at the cellular level, which is standard developmental biology. It's a kind of you know, maybe this is the beginnings of a kind of uh, sort of um, hyper developmental biology or uh -huh. something where what you're really trying to work out is the rules by which um, whole bodies communicate to better achieve, be better solve the problem of, of, of embryogenesis. Because one of the things that, well, many people have studied and our lab focuses on in particular is uh, in, in, in biological intelligence in the sense of problem solving. That means when you're confronted with a new scenario that you haven't seen before, especially a new scenario that you haven't seen before, uh, are you able to complete your goals? In the in case of development, are you able to uh, make the target morphology that, um, that that you want to make, you know, a correct embryo or some other functional thing in the case of, in the case of anthrobots? And so that's what, what, that's what we're seeing in both of these, uh, in both of these projects. We're seeing new unexpected competencies at different levels at the level of cells and then at the level of organisms uh, to do something um, helpful and coherent in novel circumstances. Angela, can you please talk to how this robustness increases with more embryos? So one embryo fails more often than if you have a collective and how you found okay. that out. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so whenever I do my treatment groups, um, so when I start stressing out these embryos, an N of one will almost never survive by itself. Um, I probably did like 50 dishes of just one embryo each and never did I ever really have a survivor. So uh -huh. um, there was something about that. Just the fact that it's getting the same amount of drug as my larger groups. 
Um, so it's not like any individual embryo is getting more um, teratogen or stressor or whatever perturbation that I'm putting on it. It's just something about being by itself. Um, and then as we kind of scale away from there, so now I'm increasing my group sizes. If we're just looking at survival by itself, I see that survival starts increasing once you hit like, I think something around a group of 50, then you'll see uh. an increase in survival. And then as you go up to like 100, you get like 80% survival. And then once you hit like a group of 300, you get almost everyone surviving. So the whole premise of this was I had get, been given a, a teratogen and someone told me, hey, this works in my hands. You want to try it out? And no matter what I did, I could not replicate that. And I could not figure out why, because I had this person telling me exactly what they did. And it came down to the number of embryos that she was using versus the number of embryos that I was using. And so to me, I was like, that's crazy that, you know, everything else was held constant. But the only thing that was different between the, our two experiments was just purely the number of embryos that we were using. Um, uh-huh. So you stumbled upon this. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, and I just, you know, I, I want to, I want to emphasize a couple things here, which again are, are re- really, really striking to me. One is that what this means and, and what Angela just pointed out is that a lot of people, when they report toxicity values for different drugs, right? So there are thousands and thousands of papers in the literature saying that um, here's this new, uh, uh, you know, um, p- potential toxin or a drug or something else that can end up in the environment. And uh, there are these tests uh, using frog and zebrafish embryos that attempt to quantify how disruptive it is to development, right? And and they'll list a number and they'll say that, okay, you know, it's maybe causes um, defects in, uh, let's say, uh, 20% of the embryo, something like that. So what we now know, and, and a lot of people don't control for actually the number of embryos that you had in your cohort, they just do a percentage and, and call it a day. So what this is telling us is that uh, many, many studies in the literature are not actually reporting the raw uh, danger value for these chemicals, they're reporting the corrected value after the group has been able to resist it, right? And so, so what what you just heard was that if if you do if you do these things on on single embryos, the actual uh, teratogenicity is is very high. You know, it's 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 extremely potent. But you start to you start to be blinded to that effect the more embryos you put in because what you're seeing is how dangerous it is after the embryos have had a good chance to correct for it, and so. That's that's really important. That that now now we know that when we um, examine the potential of of various uh, interventions to cause developmental defects, we have to ask what's the what's the raw effect size, right? What's the actual teratogenicity, and then how well do the embryos do to correct for it? So that's kind of a, a very practical uh, thing that 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 we now know that I think is important. And the other thing that is really uh, striking is that. The standard story of developmental biology and where the information comes from for you to be able to build a normal embryo is basically supposedly just two things. It's it's your actual genome, and then it's the maternal um, the components that are in the egg. So basically your, your parental genome that are, you know, there's some stuff provided for you in the egg for the, for the zygote, and, and that's it. And, and the idea is that the genome has everything you need to complete development, and development is uh, uh, rightly so described as a very um, robust process. Most of the time it goes correctly, despite its incredible complexity. And what we're seeing here is that that purely vertical view, the idea is that, that you could be one embryo, uh, sort of, uh, far away from anything else. You've got your own genome and that gives you everything you need to know. That story is clearly only partially true that y- yes, you've got, you've got the hardware that you need, but actually that, that hardware is not as robust as you think without other 
individuals around. So development, in a sense, is a group phenomenon. It's a um, that that traditional uh, robustness level of development is is actually uh, a, a collective. It's a collective property. It 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 doesn't work as well in a purely vertical sense, being passed down from from a genome to one to one organism. And does that contradict the current thinking in developmental biology? Well, in the sense that uh, this 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 kind of effect has not been described before. I mean, people have seen things like alley effects, and 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 uh, in terms of um, groups of animals surviving in some environment better than individuals. So, so that 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 has been noted, but but it wasn't known why that happens. And and I do think that uh, it it contradicts the the emphasis on purely vertical transmission and the idea that one embryo has everything it needs in its own genome. I mean, uh, these are uh, otherwise fairly conventional mechanisms that we're studying. Um, for example, one of the, one of the other amazing things about that, um, about that paper is that they were able to, uh, uh, uh Angela and Megan were able to literally visualize waves of information passing across embryos. We have videos of, uh, where, where you can actually see, and, and in order to make it easier, what we did was, uh, exert a very specific um, event. So, so basically like a needle poke into one of the, one of the embryos. So that way, you know exactly when it starts. Right. And then you can actually see using this uh, calcium um, indicator fluorescent dye, you can actually see this wave of information passing through from the point of injury through the animal and then to the next animal and then to the next one. You can just watch Mm -hmm. these signals propagate. It's just absolutely striking. Now, Angela, this wave of information, what is the mechanism? What is its physical component? Is it an electrical field? Is it just calcium ions being thrown? Is it something else? Yeah, so our current hypothesis for um, the mechanism behind all of this is that some sort of injury occurs, um, and then the embryo that's receiving this injury elicits a calcium response. This calcium response then um, releases ATP into the media, and then surrounding embryos are able to uptake this ATP and then elicit their own calcium response. So there's kind of a, a innate response to the trigger or the, the insult, and then a little message that gets sent on um, for anyone receiving it to kind of protect themselves against it. Yeah, this reminds me of trees, some trees in some forests, when one gets infected, mm, mm. it sends a signal through the roots and the others start mm-hmm. producing antibodies before they even receive the, it wouldn't be a teratogen in that case, it would be some virus or whatever, maybe a fungus. So yeah. is this similar? Yeah, animals, no? animals, and it, it, it is, and, and, and animals and plants both can signal to others when they're being um, preyed upon. So uh, there are there are examples like this where some predator is is munching on a leaf or something. Then there are volatiles released where where other other plants in the in the environment can feel it. Um, one interesting thing about this though is that we're dealing here with fairly complex processes. So it's not a binary yes or no, right? It's not a binary am I being attacked or aren't I? It's sort of uh, well, the, the, normally I would build a head of a certain shape and size. And and now I'm unable to do that. And so passing information on how to build a, a, a tadpole head requires lots of information. And this is one of the big mysteries going forward is um, how do you encode all that information in a single, uh, you know, a single um, a, a signaling molecule that's passed, right? Because it's not just the yes or no. You have to actually, I, I think, you you have to actually encode considerable amount of information to for the embryos to help each other. So whether that's happening through 
some sort of modulation of, of pulsing through the water, or you know, it's got to be something other than just simple, like here's your ATP concentration, and that's it. It's a single number. You're not going to encode head morphogenetic data in, in one number. Um, and and the other thing the other thing to mention is that these you know these projects are also going to come together because one of the one of the things that I, I would really love to see is how this shakes out uh, in the Anthrobot case. So one of the things that we will be doing in the future is is looking to see do the Anthrobots communicate with each other? Do they communicate with the other tissues that um, that they find themselves in an environment with? You know, what's the like? How general is this? Because obviously it it begins in in the frog model, but of course, as Angela said earlier, um, ultimately you might want to um, basically fake it for for biomedical purposes. So whatever signal is allowing uh, tissues and organs to form properly, you would in this in this high in these in these high density groups, you would want to be able to induce that on demand in the patient. And so the next step leads through biological tissues and especially anthrobots to see whether that kind of phenomenon is is general and whether we can harness it for biomedicine. So what I see is if this wasn't a breakthrough enough, both of these papers, so one, the anthrobots, and then some of these anthrobots, I believe, heal other cells or other tissue. Is that correct? Okay, yeah. 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 And then number two, the inter-embryo communication or the SEMA effect that you have where different tiny babies can tell other tiny babies like, hey, protect yourself and hey, let me help you with your morphogenesis. Not only that, but number three, there may be large discrepancies in the literature or misleading effects because you mentioned this word raw teratogen, raw taro, sorry, raw. Can you repeat it for me, please? Teratogenicity. Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a biologist. So raw teratogenicity, <laughs> that someone may be throwing out some harmful chemicals to a single embryo, and then someone else may be testing it on 10 embryos. But then I need to be clear here. When you're saying that there's some discrepancy in the literature. Are you saying that they're reporting the raw amount, so let's say 10 milligrams of some teratogen, but they test on 10 embryos? Do they then divide that by 10, or are you saying that they don't do that because they don't even tell you the amount of embryos to begin with? Well, what I'm saying is that um, be because no, no one had known before that the number of embryos actually determines how effective your teratogen is going to be, it means that when when they report, I mean, I mean, they're, they're really uh, other other than testing it on different size cohorts. There's no way to know. You can't simply divide it by the number of embryos. And so, um, when somebody says uh, a certain um, and 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 by the way, uh, in, in Angela's work, this this is important. It's not just about chemical teratogens. She also tested um, RNA, so mutant, mm. uh, mutant proteins. Mm -hmm. And and so so this is a, this is a much more general thing. This is not just about chemicals. And so anything, me in, including potentially uh, a, a wide range of genetic um, mutations or 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 drugs or others other uh, kinds of interventions. You know, it could be who knows. Maybe it works for radiation. Maybe it works for temperature induced defects. We don't we don't know. But the idea is that what you're seeing isn't the the real effect. What you're seeing is the effect after it has been corrected by the group. And so we really need to be sensitive to that. We need to understand that that depending on the size of the group, you may be um, under-reporting the actual disruptive power of this thing because if the group had corrected it, there, there's a similar, there's actually a really interesting similar um, phenomenon which affects evolution, which is that um, a lot of these uh, uh, model systems and, and, and animals have 
ways during embryogenesis of ways of repairing certain defects. So this is for just as an example, and many people have published other examples, but in our, in our work from, from years ago, if you scramble the craniofacial organs of a tadpole, so, you know, the eyes on the side of the head, the mm-hmm. jaws are off to the side, like everything's, everything's scrambled. They, they will actually find their way back to the right um, locations, right? They, they have the ability to individual embryos have some ability to fix these things. And so what that means for evolution, just think about um, if when, when selection gets hold of that embryo and, and everything is in the correct place and it's a beautiful embryo, selection doesn't actually know, was it beautiful because the genetics were amazing or was it beautiful because actually it started kind of a mess, but it's really good at fixing things. And so that, a bit, that, that problem is not just for human scientists, it's also for the evolutionary process itself, that you're often not seeing the actual phenomenon. What you're seeing is what's left over after the competent material, which is, which is cells and tissues, have had their say. And we have been talking about this for, for a long time in terms of individual cells, but now um, in, in this work, you're seeing that it's also a, a property of groups of embryos, you know, this ability to, to mask defects and to, um, uh, and to really uh, can, kind of uh, not let you see the full impact of, of what the disruption would have been. So what if someone says, okay, Angela, this is all nice and good, but how does this apply to our species where we have predominantly one embryo? So in other words, we're not all octomoms, so who cares, <laughs> let alone 50 omoms or 100 omoms. Yeah, so I guess for humans, we look at this phenomenon and it can occur post like birth. So things like looking at how skin to uh, skin to skin affects mother's newborns, right? Like that's a communication just in a different type of way, not no longer like this chemical teratogen embryo to embryo stuff, but there's right. still this communication interaction between mother and child. Um, also, if we look at like other things such as um, emotionally, right? Like humans talk to each other, we take care of each other. Um, talking is a type of communication. So we see that um, in the case of humans, it might not be a particular molecule that's being passed along, but it could be different forms of this interaction, whether that is contact or uh, word-based. Um, I think that the phenomenon still holds in people. And by the way, you can see in the, in, in, in the, uh, in the anthrobot case, you can see a, a microcosm of that happening because these, these anthrobots are actually helping to heal the neurons that uh, the, the neural scratch that they come across. Right. And so, so again, it's this, it's this notion of, um, cross um i don't know you they're not embryos but but there's some some sort of you know uh organism to organism uh, uh uh-huh. improvement that you're seeing right like i have a feeling i have a feeling it's a it's a much more um kind of uh general uh and 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 fundamental property but obviously it, that that a lot of that remains to be discovered yeah well, something i was going to ask is what are the boundaries associated with this morphogenetic assistance so you've established the cellular and what about organ level or tissue level or cytoskeletal or what about us as people is there some analogous mechanism through which we as humans as people we're influencing one another right now yeah quite 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 possibly and um you know and there's even uh, so so um um this 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 business of uh having having had to be uh exposed to the teratogen before you become helpful as part of the group like maybe there's a human analogy too you know mark solms told me that um to be a good psychoanalyst you had huh. you have to have been psychoanalyzed yourself right and gone through that process um so maybe yeah maybe maybe this is truly scale free in the sense that you see it in cells and tissues and and 
uh, and and all the way up. But but of course, yeah, this remains. So so we um, with with uh, support from the Emerald Gate Foundation, we have a new uh, we have a new project starting now where we're going to look at that and we're going to look at um, what 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 the limits are of this. And uh, so so that's so so in the, in the frogs and so on, we're going to look at uh, what the uh, kind of how, how how general this this phenomenon is. And then the same thing on the on the anthro uh, on the anthrobot side. Uh, we're uh, working with a company called Astonishing Labs, which again is going to let us really um, go go wider and try to understand. Okay, so they heal neural scratches. What else? What else can they heal? And how much of that is innate? And how much of that can we bring out? And how much of it is programmable? And how much of it is inducible? And so on. Gazem, I have some notes here that I wrote down from going through your paper. I have it written down here as capable of navigating and promoting repair, at least in cultured human neural cell sheets. And they're formed without genetic editing, which seems to highlight the morphogenetic plasticity of wild-type cells. Okay, so something I want to know is, in science fiction, there's this trope where you swallow a pill and it has nanobots inside. And these little (laughs) robots operate and heal you. So the deleterious effects are vanquished, at least ameliorated, maybe injuries are repaired because of the operations of these tiny machines. So do you see a future where your anthrobots can serve this purpose? Or in other words... Were these movies talking about your work, Gazem, and they just didn't know it? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's been kind of fantasized on a lot um, for kind of harnessing what nature can do um, in contexts that are not expected or unconventional. Um, so exploring human body, it's sort of as difficult as exploring the outer space. And we have spacecraft and we're, you know, doing a lot of efforts on that front. But um, I think that sort of brings, um, really triggers the science fiction community to think about how that kind of exploration can be extended into other unknown frontiers like the human body. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we are really interested in uh, seeing if the anthrobots can be deployed in tissues that are otherwise uh, inaccessible to direct operation or accessible but invasive, like surgery. Um, One of the things we are really trying to understand here, and we talked about the morphogenetic code, is to um, see if we can leverage this computational ability that's inherent in biology. So what that and that comes in two layers, right? So the computational ability to build itself. So by taking environment from the environment, um, information from the environment and processing that to, um, to 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 grow its body, as well as once its morphogenesis is complete or um, at adult sort of stable state, uh, to take it information from the environment and process that and turn that into behavior. So um, I guess in the context of navigating the body, it would be more the latter, a um, evolved and um, well developed and sort of um, matured anthrobot. Can it go through different tissues and collect information or trigger um, change? So that's, there are a lot of different sort of avenues there one could um, follow. We have so far only looked at the healing um, in in the context of neural damage, but yeah, we're hoping to look at other things like can they clear plague from the arteries uh, by uh-huh. again when encountered with a like uh, piece of plague like adipose tissue, can it um, detect that and then release some sort of a uh, molecule that would help it 
bulldoze, so combining the ability to release molecules as well as its uh, physical thrust, so like bulldozing while releasing some sort of a molecule that would melt the melt out the adipose tissue. Um, oh, wow. Or can it? Um, Again, want to make it very clear that these are some things we're kind of aiming for and uh, would require more research for us to demonstrate in the lab we have not yet. But these are You're just all some pretending. Sister- You're just keeping all the goods for yourself. <laughs> Pacing out the papers. <laughs> I'm um, going to tell the Emerald Gates Foundation. Tell them. <laughs> yeah. Since we're talking about sci-fi, uh, you know, we can elaborate on. I mean, I personally think that anthrobots or other synthetic. Uh, living biological tissues can, if you can scale them up, could even u- be used for um, like construction, like for actual mm. inhabitable structures. So I actually have a background in architecture, um, and what really brought me into this field of mm-hmm, um, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I recognize that um, in biology there is this um, ability to embody, you know. Um, self-construct with um, sort of this embodied morphogenetic code. And as Mike was talking about, this comes in layers. We're often sort of conditioned maybe from, you know, middle school biology classes to think about DNA as the rule book for everything. But what we're discovering um, is that, yes, genetic code is important, but there are additional layers um, you know, there's epigenetics or bioelectri- bioelectricity that together make up this morphogenetic code. And how can we edit this code to steer um, these um, cells into completely new architectures that never existed before? Whether to use it, um, either to use it in medicine in these ways that we're talking about, or again, since we're talking about sci-fi, I'm personally interested in scaling this up. Um, into building like self-constructing bricks. And then, you know, by using those bricks, can we build living architectures? Because, uh-huh. um, you know, yeah, I mean, when you look at um, the, you know, global warming, like more than 40% of the CO2 released to the environment is coming from the construction industry, just trying to like build things. Yes, yes, um, yeah. And that's using the knowledge that we have developed as humans for thousands of year, years in the field of architecture, civil engineering. But at the same time, when you look at nature, it's also able to build um, structures at, at scale, like oak trees or um, a lot of, you know, like you see a whale and a biology can build, you know, large things um, without let alone releasing carbon, but by sucking carbon from the environment. So it's literally carbon negative, the exact opposite of what we are um, doing as humans. Um, and now, like in the, you know, 21st century, we are learning that that's actually also programmable. It's not set in stone. You're not mm-hmm. limited to only what's evolved out there. But as a biologist, engineer, designer, you can actually edit nature and create new structures. So why not create structures that we can use to solve some of the other problems, um, like sustainable construction yeah, or even space exploration. I mean, right now it's real difficult to leave the planet um, because of the gravitational pull. So the more weight you have, you know, aboard in your spacecraft, the more you're being pulled back, you need to have larger rockets to get you out, but then those rockets also uh, pull you down even more because of their weight and so, you know, um, intricate balance. And are you really going to put in a bunch of like dead weight, like bricks, um, you know, um, or concrete 
um, precursors to build in like outer space. Instead, instead, can you just take a tube of engineered cells that weigh nothing, and then once you leave the gravitational pull, you can just grow them up into new structures that you can use to, you know, build in um, in outer space. So we look at a lot to medicine, but I think there are applications in other fields too. Right. That's super cool. So Gazem, you don't know this, but my background's in math and physics. And I often wonder, what would I do if I had to do it over and I had to choose something else? What would I choose? And I think it would be civil engineering. Well, I often say this because I look at houses and how they're constructed and it looks the same as it's looked for the past few decades and it takes just as long. And I always think, man, I wish that that could be done much quicker. I'm also a germaphobe. So in addition to being (laughs) mathematical (laughs) physics, there's germaphobia and I'm a nerd. So Dragon Ball Z and Dragon Ball Z, I don't know if you know this show, but you have this little capsule you bring with you and then you throw it on the ground and it becomes a house or it becomes whatever. Yeah. So that's really the dream. (laughs) Yes. I like this idea of building a robot from smaller pieces. Also because like I'm a germaphobe and I want robots to clean washrooms because I just feel horrible for janitors. Mm -hmm. I feel like, oh my gosh, how do they do that? And they should be paid so much more. I wish a robot could just go and do that. And then a robot would deconstruct because then you'd wonder, how do you clean the robot? Yeah. (laughs) Biodegrade. Yeah. So I hope that you could make some inroads there. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Yeah, I mean, we have microphages that go down like Chase Factory and swallow it and degrade it. So we can maybe transfer the same principle to biobots. What's the lifespan or functional lifespan of the anthrobots that you've been studying? Uh, so, yeah, um, so the, for them to build themselves, it's about two weeks. Um, and then for this, um, so we at the very beginning talked about uh, releasing them from the matrix and then having them sort of turn inside out that morphological reorganization that takes sort of another week or so. So three weeks is for their developmental, um, developmental phase, which we now work, we're working on a follow up paper to characterize those stages more. But once it's a sort of adult bot that is able to move around, um, we, there is a variability there. Um, we've seen them living from sort of month to multiple months 
But what happens in every single case, um, if you know, in their vial, if you're not like giving them different um, drugs or anything in their vial type anthrobot case, what happens at the end of these multi-month um, period is every single time just degradation into individual cells, so um, and and to debris. So they're able to naturally biodegrade. Um, which sort of helps with the concerns around, well, if you put them into body, then what's going to happen? Will they yeah. ever like create clogs? We ha- what we have seen in the lab is every single time they degrade into individual cells. So then that's not going to be any different than the individual cells that your body disposes of. Now, I understand you didn't genetically modify these, but did you observe any other changes that were epigenetic or bioelectric? Uh, we haven't looked at their electricity, as Mike said. That's like definitely one of the next things to look at because there's so much there. And that was that concept concept was foreign to me until I came to Mike's lab. Uh, up until uh, my PhD, I was doing a lot of actually genetic ed- editing, synthetic circuits to change morphology. And it was here that I'm realizing that there are all these other layers, like the complete morphogenetic code. So it, no, that that's not something we've done yet, but we would love to look at. Um, but other epigenetic, so I mean, this whole thing um, that we talked at the beginning about character formation, right? So none, no two anthrobots are identical, but we have these morphotypes and behavioral classes that also happen to influence each other. Uh, so figures two, three, four in the paper. Um, I mean, that has got to be um, a result of some sort of epigenetic influence. Because again, every single anthrobot starts with the exact same DNA, but they end up in different um, sort of morphological flavors. One is fully covered with cilia, one sort of mm-hmm. morphotype. Another morphotype um, is fully polarized. So half of it is covered with cilia. The other half is bold. The third type is, um, again, cilia everywhere, but much more sparse, so like a checkerboard pattern. I mean, if all of these bots have started with the same DNA, what's causing this morphological you know, um, variability? Mm-hmm. And that has got to be epigenetics. Uh, we don't yet know uh, what those epigenetic knobs are. Uh, we have some supplementary um, that data in the paper that um, discuss matrigel, the matrix viscosity as a potential factor, or their um, initial you know cell density. So that's sort of reminiscent of Angela's work, like based on how many cells we start with, the resulting. Um, answer about population profile is different. So those are the only two things we've looked at and we have significant differences. So those seem to be like maybe one of the first couple knobs, but we still have a long way to understand what are the knobs and then uh, what's the underlying sort of mechanism that's making those knobs to be the ones that are influential. Yeah, one one thing that I just wanted to add um, on top of that is that um, the original meaning of the word epigenetics was basically everything that's not the genome, right? So, so that includes bioelectricity, that right? So, so traditionally that would include biophysical factors, biomechanical factors, um, ionic factors, and so on. So, when we say, um, uh, at, at least when I say epigenetic, I don't just mean the chromatin modifications that people focus on today, you know, the mm-hmm. methylation, the acetylation, all that stuff, but actually all these other things. So, so we don't know. I mean, there could be, of course, there could be chromatin modification effects, but but we're you know the next step is to, is to look at the uh, at the bioelectrics and and probably biomechanics too and other other um, aspects of the physiology of it. So there was a term gazem that was used 
And Michael, I'd like you to explain it just for the audience to know. It was Matrix and the term escaping the Matrix was used. And so <laughs> because we're dealing with people thinking you've cracked the code, you need to explain right. what's meant by that because people are going to think well, everyone here is 95 years old and you just <laughs> made yourself look younger. That's right. It's the cosmic matrix. No, no, it's not the cosmic <laughs> matrix. It's, um, yeah. So, so, so cells, uh, produce this stuff called extracellular matrix. And it's basically just a, uh, it's a collection of important molecules that sit on the outside of cells and between cells. And they, uh, they, it, it has all sorts of functions, including as a repository for information. So much like ants, um, leave, leave each other messages in their environment, right? And it's, it's a, thing called stigmergy when you can when you use the environment as a scratch pad so uh extracellular matrix in vivo is this kind of like um rich set of molecules that are hanging out between and outside of cells that can also be used as information and, and influence and so uh mean she could tell you more about the, the specifics of it but she but she's she's using a specific um matrix to support these cells in their journey to becoming an anthrobot mm-hmm. angela what happened when you tried to block communication or were you unable to because you didn't know what the communication was? Yeah, so based off of our hypothesis that communication was occurring through this calcium ATP signaling mechanism, we did try to use different um, inhibitors of calcium and ATP. And what we see is that when we inhibit either or, um, the survival of our embryos actually decrease. So they basically become um, singleton. So they act as if they're being raised by themselves. So for by blocking those messages, these embryos now think, oh no, I have no neighbors, even though they are still in a group of 100 or 300. Uh-huh. And so it would go down to the level of what it would be if it was a single embryo? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so what we saw was simply by blocking these communication um, avenues that these embryos are no longer ab- able to basically sense each other. Now they think that they're just being raised by themselves, um, despite that not being the case. You were able to test it also without the teratogens, but with the communication blockers? Yes, yeah, yeah. So we did um, just regular um, media in which we grow up our embryos and just added the uh, the inhibitor to see, okay, does the inhibitor have some sort of effect? And we see that um, by itself, the inhibitor doesn't. But with a teratogen on top of um, the inhibitor, then we see this communication basically going to zero. And so what were the controls that you used to establish that the group size was the factor and not some other environmental variable that is somehow correlated with the group size? Yeah, so... There is a number of things that I tried to normalize. So we tried to scale up dish size. So whether the embryos have more space or not, that was a concern. So I just would increase group sizes or dish sizes as group sizes increase. Um, obviously, the media and the teratogen. So how much um, each embryo is being exposed to was a major concern because the first thought is, okay, well, if you have an N of 1, that N of 1 is being hit with all the teratogen versus if you have an N of 300, now you have more individuals to help you break that up. And so to address that, I scaled up both the amount of media that each embryo is getting as well as the drug. Mm-hmm. So now, kind of like what you and Mike were saying, where one X, um, an embryo of one will get a one X versus an embryo of three will get three X of that. And so we try to normalize for as much as we can so that whatever we see is, is purely due to group size. 
but also the the other important thing there is that in in addition to these drug um you know if if it were just drugs then you have to deal with uh, dr- a drug breakdown and all this stuff so so the other important set of data in that paper is doing the same thing but with rna injected directly into embryos so there are no drugs there's no issue of of what happens to the drug in the medium it's just every embryo gets gets the same amount of rna that normally would destabilize development in a in a particular way and and the other you know the other thing to add here which is important is that it's actually it's actually doubly surprising because the standard if you if you were to ask somebody okay uh, i i have uh, well, whatever 50 embryos in a dish and what i'm going to do is instead put 300 embryos in a dish what do you think is going to happen to their health typically the expectation would be it should get worse because yeah. by by having more embryos together, you have more opportunity for uh, crowding effects, for uh, you know uh, toxic byproducts to accumulate, for you know oxygen to be um, pulled out of the medium, and all that kind of stuff. So you would typically you you wouldn't just not expect this effect; you would actually expect it backwards. You would expect to do worse in a larger group, and this is that that's why this is so remarkable. You know, this is this is really just completely counter counter expectation. So. Angela, have you extended your study to see if any of the advantages observed in the early development with the SEMA effect have led to better or different outcomes as the embryos grow further? Yeah, so, I mean, we've taken our um, embryos and we stress them out early, but then we follow their growth. So we follow their development until they hit basically um, stage 45, which is as long as IACUC allows us to grow. Um, to raise these embryos. And so by stage 45 is when I look at everyone and say, okay, do you have a defect or not? Um, And basically also do a rough count of, okay, how many of this group is still alive? Um, So we do follow their development kind of as long as we can, at least um, from the the one cell stage up until stage 45. And Gizem, um, what's the t- 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 uh, talk a little bit about the range of ages of the donors from which we get our anthrobots? Just since we're talking about age, and so. <laughs> yeah. So we've uh, we've, we have an age range from twenty one to seventy six years old humans um, wow. donating their sort of the long tissue at the bifurcation point, and this uh, these progenitor cells that sit at the base of the uh trachea the the tracheal epithelium looking directly to the matrix in the body extracellular matrix in the body um those cells from all these different um patients were able to give rise to anthrobots one thing to clarify here is like for a specific anthrobot population we start with um, in a you know single sort of dish. Let's say um, we start with uh, fifteen thousand cells, um, and we only get actually like hundreds of bots. Um, and and the dish is sort of a, a centimeter across, so it's a very very tiny dish. Um, so not every single cell becomes an anthrobot, but every anthrobot, um, you know, based on what we're seeing, is coming from a single cell. So in other words, from a human donor, it's not guaranteed that every single human lung progenitor cell will become an anthrobot, but enough many of them, and this is due to the senescence, um, but enough many of them become um, that it's every single time we have a high throughput um, method that gives us a sizable population. Well, this is all so fascinating, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing the follow-up research 
Man, oh man. The two papers will be linked in the description. They're also on screen. And by the way, if you're just listening to this, I recommend you watch it on YouTube because at any point when something is brought up, for instance, Michael, you referenced a result, a graph that's on screen at the same time. So what I want to know is, what's next for you all? Both personally, I understand that some of you are getting your PhD soon. So both personally, and then also as follow-up research with regard to what we were talking about today. Gazem, I'll start with you, and then Angela, and then Michael, I want to know about what's next for you, especially the Mind Everywhere project. So Gazem, please. Sure. Um, I actually just defended my PhD a few weeks ago. Um, so Congratulations. I'm in the, thank you. I'm in a transition phase, and um, what's next is to trying to understand the capabilities of native capabilities of these anthrobots as well as starting to uh, engineer them for specific outcomes um, based on sort of what target um, morphological and functional sort of goals we may have. Um, so yeah, controlling to uh, continuing to explore what can they do and what we can get them to do. How does it feel to be done your PhD or at least to almost be done completely? <laughs> Thank you. Still surreal. It's been uh, more than five years that I've been working on this project. Um, and I've, it's been sort of the, the, because when I first started, I was, um, I, I really wanted to work with Mike because I knew that he was really interested in cracking the morphogenetic code and understanding, you know, like for me, understanding how the hell the you know the this natural architectures build themselves like how is it exactly happening what are the control sort of parameters um so that's why i was really um interested in uh, conducting the research PhD research in this lab and um learning about all these new sort of non-genetic approaches to um doing that was new for me so um and I've just been really surprised by the level of uh, change mm -hmm. we were able to induce in these cells. I mean, this is really radical, going from a single cell to something as complex as an anthrobot. Uh, so far, what I had done, like in my master's, was uh, the more sort of genetic approach. Okay, if I put in this gene, this will happen, that gene. This, so, so those were really small changes. Um, the trade-off is that you know exactly what you're putting in there, so you have a lot of control. So yeah, I just was not expecting that um, we would really be able to accomplish something uh, sort of as radical as this. So yeah, it's been it's been great. Great, great. Angela, what's next for you? Yeah, so I will hopefully be following Chazam and graduating fairly soon. Um, now that this paper is done and it's out for the world to see, um, it's kind of been a long process. I started it in my rotation like six years ago and it survived a pandemic and everything. So it feels good to, to at least be close to the finish line. Um, and then, yeah, I hope to be able. So afterwards, I'll um, continue in Mike's lab for a little bit after just to wrap things up and hopefully continue to pursue this idea of looking at how genomics aren't really responsible for everything of an organism um so yeah we're we're hopefully going to continue to look into this project look at different avenues of communication look at some of these things that we didn't really have time to look at with this first paper but hopefully follow-up um experiments are going to be very exciting and by the way what surprised you most about this research like during it or 
from the reception, I understand that. Hey, it's being released today, so it wouldn't be reception from the public, but you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. So I think um, for me, this whole idea of um, how our genome doesn't encode for our anatomy, right? So if you think about a tadpole and a frog, they have the same genome, but their morphologies are completely different. And so kind of diving into this little hole of like looking into, okay, given that, you know, the whole field is focused on genomics and genetics, but what else is there that can contribute to our morphology? So what other instructive information can we receive or that we can give in order to form, um, to form properly? Angela, the frog that you used, it's a certain species called the Xenopislavis. And for people who don't know, that was the embryos. The embryos we keep talking about are from that species. Now, that's been a staple of Michael's work for at least a decade. Why? What separates this frog, this species, from other frogs and other species? What useful properties does it have? Yeah, so I think Xenopislavis is one of the reasons that we use it is because the genome is well studied. So there's something called ZenBase, which has all the genomic um, information. It has expression. It has a lot of staining that people are interested in. So having that database, I think, is very useful. Um, also, another perk of using um, Xenobot or Xenopus is that um, the embryos develop um, outside of the outside of the organism, and you can you can see it. The embryos are quite large. You can see them with the naked eye. And then with the help of a microscope, you can track them and you can watch them develop from a single cell to a two cell to a four cell stage. So it's um, it's an ease almost um, being able to just watch it and having a database to compare it to, I think, makes it a very strong model organism. Um, and I mean, there, there's going to be perks and cons to every organism. I think, I mean, obviously, uh -huh, I have a preference uh -huh. for the Xenopus, but yeah. Angela, something else is that with the RNA sequencing, you uncovered that there were transcriptional changes associated with the SEMA effect. So were you able to identify any genes that responded differently in the small groups versus the large groups? Yeah, so in our paper, we do an RNA-seq. So we look at the RNA of these embryos. Um, and essentially what I do is I have a large group of 300 embryos and a small group of 100 embryos. So we're comparing the group sizes of both treated and untreated individuals. For the purpose of the paper, we focus on um, the two group sizes that are being treated. And what we see is that there's a total of like 16 genes that are up and down regulated. Um, and there's specific um, types of pathways that are being used in the small groups and specific types of pathways being used in the large groups. So it, it almost indicates that if you're in a large group, you're coping with the stress in one way versus when you're in a, uh, in a smaller group, you're coping with the stress in a different way. Uh-huh. And so transcriptional changes mean that the gene is then expressed differently or what? What does it mean? Yeah. So uh, with RNA-seq, we're looking at the how many copies of the gene there is essentially. So looking at the profile of the RNA. So what RNA is present and how much of it is present. Great. Michael, what's next for you? Yeah, well, uh, the, you know, the first thing I want to say is just how how incredibly proud I am of both of, of Gizem and Angela and and the rest of the teams because uh, there were there were lots of other people, collaborators, undergrads, and and other other uh, postdocs, and um, but just like uh, they've done such an amazing job pushing forward this project and 
uh, everybody needs to understand it is really hard, not only to it, like innovating in science is hard and getting something to work is hard. And, and, and both Angela and Gizem have been, uh, you know, faced all kinds of issues to get this stuff to work. But, but then just, just the idea of being a young person at that stage of the career and, um, having something that's so different and kind of counter expectation, it, it's a lot of pressure and it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of responsibility. And I just, you know, I think people should understand that. Like it's hard for anybody else listening to this, um, you know, who might be in that position or might be considering going into it. Um, I, I don't know what, what you all feel, but to me, it's as, as hard and, and as, um, uh, as much pressure as it is, it's the most fun you can have, mm-hmm. I think. So, you know, that's just, I just want, you know, want everybody to understand, like it's, 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 um, yeah, it's not just, it's not just standard incremental science. Like this was like, they did an amazing thing. So, um, so that's, that's the first thing I wanted to just say that, uh, you know, um, super, super proud of, of, of you both. Um, yeah. Um, let's see, uh, next. Well, uh, obviously we're going to continue with some of the stuff uh, that we talked about. So, so the use, uh, the practical uses of, of on the anthrobots, the practical uses of them, uh, the ability to um, try to uh, understand how to program them towards nor- um, new and controllable f- shapes and functions. And also because we, in my group, we're very interested in uh, uh, basal cognition in general and diverse intelligence more more broadly, um, really understanding what are the properties, uh, the the protocognitive properties of this new model system. What what do they know how to do? Do they can they form memories? Can they learn from their environment? Can they um, do they have preferences about different uh, different uh, lifestyles or different outcomes that that can befall them and so on? And none of this is known. We've made no claims yet as to their level on the sort of you know the spectrum of of cognition. We have no idea where they where they fit but the one thing i know for sure is that we we don't guess we have to do experiments and find out so so we're going to find out so that's that's those are the anthropod stuff um um on the on the sema front uh clearly trying to of course uh, better understand how it works and how the information is encoded that goes between the um the the uh, embryos and really to make models of this as a collective intelligence. So we already know, we've already we've already made models that, and, and other people have too, that treat individual cells within the growing embryo as a collective intelligence. But it turns out there are multiple levels to this, maybe not surprising in the end, that, um, that maybe the group is also has a, 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 the ability to compute um, the path mm-hmm. through anatomical space. So, so really understanding this, and then on the biomedical side, learning to um, induce it at will. Because as you said, you know, in the human case, where, where you have a patient, not necessarily an embryo, but a, but a patient, um, they're not part of a 500, uh, you know, a connected 500 individual cohort, but could we, could we fake it? Could we, you know, is there a way to, uh, is there a way to um, give that information that they would have had if they had been? So, so those are the kinds of things. And then again, to really understand how the, you know, we, we, th- we think individual cells are using bio, the, the bioelectric networks as a cognitive medium. Um, what are, what are embryos using? Such that the group has the ability to solve certain problems. Is it is it uh, you know a field of um, of ATP and 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 calcium and and who knows what else, right? So these are all these are all things that we're going to be uh, that we're going to be tackling next. I think it's going to be very exciting. And the Mind Everywhere project. Yeah, I mean, this is, both both of these uh, both of these projects are are key uh, elements of that. Uh, you know, this is. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm working on that. So, so that tame paper, um, was sort of version 1.0. So I'm, I'm working on the next one. It's going to be a little while still, but, um, we've learned, we've learned a lot, uh, since, since that first one, the we, we're getting, um, I think better, uh, better, better conceptual foundations, better computer models of what it takes to scale cognition. You know, this, this idea of the cognitive glue, what is it? And it enables 
in, in competent individuals like cells or even molecular networks to scale up into larger IQ individuals that solve problems in other spaces, bigger bigger boundaries of the self, and so on. So we, the, I mean, two, two, these two projects are, are part of it. There are many other um, projects that contribute as well. So yeah, moving moving along. Are you planning on writing a book, Michael, to introduce your studies to a lay audience? Yeah. So so there's so so I'm I'm committed to one book. So so um, One Pagan and I are writing a book on bioelectricity. We have a contract with Norton. It's due. Um, towards the end of 24, so that's that's something that's that we're definitely doing. Um, so that's that's a that's a basic book on on bioelectricity and its um, kind of import for medicine and so on. Um, in my head, I sort of rattling around have two other books. One that's on this basal cognition kind of topic that sort of talks about the um, the scaling of intelligence from from um, very minimal systems um, all the way up. Um, and then maybe one after that, we'll see, we'll, we'll see. First, first I, you know, I, I can't even imagine finishing this, uh, this, this first one that I'm doing. So I need to, I need to get past that. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having and us. Yeah. Great discussion. Thanks thank for you. the great questions. I was surprised when you said you yeah. were not a biologist. <laughs> yeah, 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 I, I was exactly. sure you must have had like some sort of maybe at least like undergrad or master's training in biology because the questions were really yeah. good. Thank you. Thank yep. you. Yeah, spot on. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything, where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build as a community our own toes. Links to both are in the description. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. Last but not least, you should know that this podcast is on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on every one of the audio platforms. Just type in theories of everything and you'll find it. Often I gain from re-watching lectures and podcasts, and I read that in the comments, hey, toll listeners also gain from replaying. So how about instead re-listening on those platforms? iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast catcher you use. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting patreon.com slash and donating with whatever you like. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. For instance, this episode was released a few days earlier. Every dollar helps far more than you think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough.